turn to, oh, thank you. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And uh, today we're going to uh, look at several passages, three passages basically, and tie them all together in one idea that we believe Jesus is addressing. But we'll begin with this story of the so-called rich young ruler. And uh, this story is full of uh, lessons for us, of uh, le- lessons about the kingdom of God, about who Jesus is and what he intends to do for us, and what he calls us to be and to do. So let's look at it. Mark chapter 10, verses 17. We'll go all the way through 45, and we'll combine these three uh, paragraphs, really, these three stories into one. Let's look at it. 10, 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, And teachers of the law, they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. 
Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Well, this morning we'd like to look at the topic of true greatness. And uh, this is a very, very important topic because down deep underneath our skin and in our hearts, every man is seeking for greatness. And the reason is you were made for this. God made you great. And uh, when you're redeemed, you're redeemed for greatness too. So there's something phenomenal about the human being and there's something phenomenal about his future and down deep inside our consciences we know this the problem is of course we seek for greatness in all the wrong ways and we even seek the wrong kind of greatness or we seek greatness prematurely because peter said humble yourselves that is don't be great humble yourselves now under the mighty hand of god and he will exalt you he will make you great in due time so some of it has to do with seeking greatness in the wrong way sometimes Sometimes it has to do with seeking greatness at the wrong time, like now, instead of later. But down deep inside all of us, there is an aspiration for greatness because actually we were made for it and even redeemed for it. And so it's very important that we understand what greatness is, and it has to do with the kingdom of God. You're going to find your greatness in the kingdom. You're not going to find your greatness outside the kingdom. It's going to be within the kingdom. And what's interesting about this text is that it, it is juxtaposed to the previous text which tells us that it's the little kids that are great. And then anyone who wants to have greatness or to enter the kingdom of God is to enter it like a little kid. And then all of a sudden we come up with this sharp leader, this brilliant, uh, upwardly rising young executive. And he's the one left out. Little kids are taken in and the contrast is quite stark and so we have to ask ourselves the question, what happened between the time that this guy was a little kid and would have been one that Jesus would have taken up in his arms and blessed and said, of such is the kingdom of God. What happened between that time in his life and now that he's a young aspiring executive? What happened to him? Well, we're going to see something tragic happened in all of his civility and all of his sophistication and all of his goodness, so to speak. Uh, he's lost it. Something happened between the days of blessing in the arms of Jesus when he was a kid and what he is now as an adult. So what we want to we look at in this text, first of all, is that uh, no one is great enough to e earn eternal life. No one is great enough to earn eternal life. This is a fundamental principle that is throughout the Scriptures. We find that ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, no one is great enough to earn their way back into the Garden of Eden. It is forever irrevocably lost as far as we have anything to do with it. And it is forever the difficulty of men to realize that you cannot earn your way out of this. You cannot achieve your way out of it. You cannot cover it up. You cannot make up for it. There's no way you can do it. 
And this is the very backdrop or the subtext for the gospel itself. Is the, the beginning point is there's no way back on our own effort. Paul goes to great lengths to describe this in his letter to the Romans, which is kind of the classic uh, description uh, and definition of the gospel. And before he ever gets to the gospel in Romans chapter 3, he takes two and a half chapters, all the way up to 3 through 3.20, to describe how we are fallen. And it's not just those crazy, polytheistic, pagan Greeks and Romans. It's the very religious Jews and the very moral pagans. It's all of us, religious people, non-religious people. We could say Christians, non-Christians, people who are religious, people who are irreligious. He says all of them have their mouths shut before the living God. They've all fallen short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the, the pretext for the, the gospel story. Because you can't understand the gospel until you understand you're completely bereft of any possibility of pleasing God and making your way back into His favor on your own account. This is the big trouble with men who go from their childhood when they're dependent upon their parents and dependent upon their teachers and dependent upon anyone to feed them and take care of them. And all of a sudden they come into independence and self-direction and self-sufficiency. This is what disqualifies people from really knowing the Lord. We're going to see this very clearly in the text. No one is great enough to, to earn eternal life. And in verse 17, we have presented to us one of the finest young men in all of Israel. And the point is, not even the best the world can produce can earn eternal life. We know from this text that, that this man was a wealthy man. And uh, we know from Matthew and Luke that he was a young man and that he was a ruler. That is, that he, he, was, a, he was in some form of governance. So here's a young man who's already made his way up to be called a ruler, and he's already a very wealthy man. He has obviously inherited an estate, and he seems to be managing that estate quite well. Furthermore, this is not just a man who's successful in his business and who is greatly admired in the community and one of the true blue bloods of his city, but here's a man who has seemingly deep religious instincts. And any of us who would look at him and say, there is a fine civil man and there is a religious man who is following out the, the, the uh, implications of his own convictions. You'd have to respect him. Very respectable man. Look what's said about him. He runs up to Jesus. He shows great respect. Jesus is there, stationary. This man comes to him. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, would you want to come visit me? Would you like to come to my house? No, he runs to Jesus, shows great respect for him. When he gets there, what does he do? Falls on his knees before him. My stars. This man is showing tremendous respect for the rabbi, Jesus, acknowledging that he is a wise teacher. So this man is no uh, slouch at all. And then when he gets there, he calls him good teacher, good rabbi, good man, which is a rare term in the Scriptures, as we shall see. And then he asks him the most fundamental religious question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The man has inherited riches. He's inherited a temporal estate that is quite happy. But he knows that that's not all there is. He knows that there's a heaven and an earth. 
He knows that there's eternal life. And he says, how can I get it? What can I do to inherit it? It's hard to draw a picture of, of any more, uh, an any, uh, to draw a, an even bigger picture of a better man than this. It's hard to describe or give an outline of a person who would be more highly respected than this kind of man. In all the scriptures, you won't find a better man on his own account coming to the Lord Jesus Christ to talk about anything, including Nicodemus. So what, what we are being shown here by Mark is Jesus' response to the best that human beings can produce. Now let's notice that not even the, world, uh, the world's best can produce is great enough. Well, let's look at Jesus' challenge. Jesus challenges the best this world can produce. And here's his challenge. First of all, our view of good. He says in verse, eight, verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus here is not questioning the man's ascription of deity to Jesus. Jesus is not disclaiming deity for himself. He's simply acknowledging this man is using the word good too lightly or even too flippantly. There's a reason for that. This man actually thinks he too is good. And that's the reason he can call Jesus good. But what has happened is the man has devalued the very idea of good. And so have we. I'm quite sure we have no idea what good really is. And Jesus says to this, is that me? No, it's you. Uh, Jesus, <laughs> I, I had to go off one time and I was speaking to a crowd about like this and I went ahead and answered it. <laughs> it was my son. He was absolutely horrified. I was just trying to embarrass him. Uh, but Jesus is showing this, this man, he has no idea what good is. He says, here's what good is. It's God's character. Now, this is reflected in your scriptures. I think I've mentioned to you before, you know, this very, very fine book, From Good to Great, gives you the idea that great is better than good. That great is more rare than good. But when you actually look in the scriptures at the use of the word great and the use of the word good, you find just the opposite. So what men really ought to be trying to do is go from great to good, not good to great. Because in the scriptures, you'll find great is mentioned of a lot of things. Uh, David is called great. Uh, Moses is called great. Uh, Barzillai the Gileadite is called great. That's just my point. You know, you say, who's, who's Barzillai the Gileadite? Well, I don't know. That's just the point. Lots of people are called great. Nabal is called great. Wicked Nabal. Uh, well, Jerusalem's called great. So is Babylon. It's called great. Nineveh is called great. So you have all kinds of cities, wicked and righteous alike, and all kinds of people, wicked and righteous alike, called great. Great in the Old Testament basically means a person or a city of great prominence or great property. So a man was great if he was wealthy, basically. In fact, in the NIV, sometimes you won't find it translated great. It'll be translated rich. So that's what greatness is. Uh, but if you look at the Scriptures and find out who is good you will not find any example in the Old Testament. Well, there's one. David uh, uh, sees a messenger coming 
to tell him about the battle and whether his son was killed. And he sees the messenger come and he says, Oh, Ahimeaz, he's a good man. He'll have a good report. Well, that's the only example in the Old Testament of a good man. And you can see that's not a sincere reference to a man as being having good character. It's just the hope that he'll bring a good report because he's a good man. In the New Testament, you get two. Joseph of Arimathea, who took the dead body of Jesus and buried it, and Barnabas. And I would say Barnabas is the only one we really know much about whose goodness is really laid out for us in Acts chapter 11. Those are the only references to good. Two in the New Testament and one very questionable one in the Old Testament. Why? Because God alone is good. When you look in the Old Testament, the word tov, you could spell it T-O-V, I suppose, in Hebrew, is the word for good. And where do you find, you find many references to good. How do you find it? Well, Genesis chapter 1. It was evening and the morning the first day. It was God created and it was good. Second day, it was good. Third day, it was good. Sixth day, it was very tov. It was very good. So in God's work of creation, you find it. You find it also in God's providence. Uh, In Genesis, at the end of Genesis, you find, of course, Joseph's brothers seeking to kill him. Judah works out a deal so they can just sell him into slavery. Thanks a lot, Judah. Great, good move there. So Joseph is sold off into slavery by his brothers. Eventually, you know, they come to Egypt. And he recognizes them. They don't recognize him because he's speaking, he's speaking Egyptian, not Hebrew. They, don't even know, they have no idea the prime minister is their own brother whom they sold into slavery. He recognizes them. Later on, of course, you know, God forces it so that they will eventually recognize him. And they're terrified. The most powerful man in the world is their own brother whom they betrayed. They're in deep weeds, and they know it. And Joseph reassures them. and says, yes, you intended it to me for evil, but God intended it for good. Why? Because God sends one of his own people into Egypt to have great power and be able to feed the nation of Israel in their hunger and starvation and famine. So God intended it for Tov. So God's providence is good. Of course, in Romans 8.28, we find that all things, including being sold into slavery, all things, including your bankruptcy, all things, including your cancer, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So God's providence is good, whether you realize it or not. If you're in Him. So there you have God's creation. You have God's providence. And thirdly, you have God's being. But you look in the Psalms, you'll find the word good all over the place. Uh, Be thankful unto Him and bless His name, says Psalm 100. Why? For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and His truth endureth through all generations. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. So you see what Jesus is saying. My young man, who says to your friends all the time, hey, good buddy, let me tell you something about good. No one is good but God alone. So let's just start off and realize you have devalued the idea of good in your own mind. So when you evaluate yourself and when you evaluate other people, you evaluate it on the curve. And the Bible doesn't curve. The Bible describes Reality. 
and God alone is good. That's what Jesus is saying to him. So let's first of all correct our idea of good and realize that rather than moving from good to great, let's go from our human aspirations for great, let's aspire to good. That is far more rare than great in the Bible and in Memphis. So Jesus says, first of all, let's get straight our view of good. Then he says, secondly, in verse 19, let's get straight our view of the law of God. What does he do when he wants to to press his point about goodness? He goes from his description of God to his description of a good man. Now, the law reveals the character of God. That's the most important thing about any law. That's the reason that law is so important. Because when you change your statutes and your laws, you're changing your God. When you change your definition of a good man, you're changing your definition of God. Because we are the image of God, and law reflects His character. For example, if we say, uh, you should not steal. Well, it starts with God, who honors all of His own creation, and never takes anything unjustly from another man. Or if we say, you should not commit adultery. Look at God. He doesn't commit adultery. He is faithful to you. It starts with God's character. So all laws flow out of God's character. So Jesus is starting with the, with the ultimate essence, which is God's character. Now he's going to come down and talk about the laws that have been revealed to us, which show us God's character, and show us the communicable attributes of God, which we are to assume into ourselves. And that is what law is. We're taking the communicable attributes of God and taking them into our own hearts and lives. So that we are truly imitating him. And he says to this man, you obviously not only don't understand God's goodness, but you don't understand the law's goodness. And he says to him, uh, you want to know how to inherit eternal life? All right, here you know. Here you go. The commandments. You say, this, that's kind of strange. I thought Jesus would say, let me give you the four-point plan of the gospel. And Jesus doesn't do that. Now, now let's slow down just a minute. Maybe if Jesus doesn't do it, maybe we ought to be more careful too. Maybe we ought to start with the law. Maybe the law provides the pretext for the understanding of the gospel. Maybe it does. And maybe the reason more men don't come to Jesus Christ is that more men have not spent time thinking about the law. Aha! Jesus doesn't make that mistake. Francis Schaeffer, back in the 60s, said that if he were riding a train in Europe... And he had 60 minutes on the train with a secular European. He would spend the first 55 minutes talking about the law. And then five minutes on the gospel. Why? Because he was saying in his time in the 60s, people did not know of their own lack of goodness. They did not know of their own need. They did not know of their own trespasses against the law of God. They did not know of his wrath abiding upon their heads in their natural condition. And he said, I'd take 55 minutes to convince them of that, then I'd take five minutes on the gospel. Notice that Jesus is doing the same thing. And I think one reason that we have such a hard time communicating in our own environment is that we don't want to talk about the law. We don't want to talk about God's standards. We want to kind of be nice. And when you want to be nice and have everybody's favor, you're not going to be able to communicate the gospel. I'm sorry, because you can't give the pretext for the gospel. And here it is. He says, examine the commandments. You know them. 
And he cites a good number of the commandments. He actually adds one to the Ten Commandments here. He says, do not defraud. That would be part of not stealing, actually. And it is a law in the Old Testament, so Jesus can do whatever he wants there. But he says, here are the commandments. And there is a commandment not to defraud, but most of those are Ten Commandments. And he says, here you know them. And he, he throws out the law of God. Now, what we're going to see is, This text, Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, you don't have to turn there. Let me just read this to you, where in the Old Testament, it actually speaks of life through the law. Uh, Moses says to the children of Israel, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. So, Moses says, obey the law and live. And the law is life-giving to us. And as much, in as much as we obey the law, we are experiencing this new life that God has given us. So there's certainly truth to this, that there is life in the law. Now, Jesus knows down deep inside, of course, and he's going to display it very clearly, that you cannot keep the law completely. Why? Because it's not your nature. You have a fallen nature and you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. So we violate the law. But we can't even begin to understand it until we look at the law and all of its depth and examine ourselves. Now, if you will, leave your finger in Mark chapter 10. Turn to the back of your study Bibles to page 2199 or 2198. And that puts you in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Which I thought this was a Bible study. Ah, it is. We'll get back to it in a minute. But I want you to just look at one thing here. This is question number 99 on page 2198. Question 99 says, what rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? And you have to understand what the larger catechism teaches is that you can take the entire moral law of God and the Ten Commandments summarize it. So if you want to know where's a summary Of all the law of God, the the larger catechism teaches, well, it's the Ten Commandments. You could boil it down to two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. So the first four commandments, love the Lord your God. The next six commandments, love your neighbors yourself. So you really have two commandments that summarize all the commandments. And that's what Jesus said when he was asked, which is the greatest commandment? He gave those two. The, The Ten Commandments are a further working out of those two in two tablets or two categories. And then, of course, all the other case law that's in the Old Testament fits under one of those ten. So those ten are your basic principles out of which comes all your casuistry law, all your statutes, and so on. Now, what the larger catechism teaches is that there is a way to understand the law so you apply it to yourself properly. For example, it says, number one, the law is perfect and binds everyone to full conformity in the whole man. So you can't just say, well, I didn't steal yesterday. And say, I'm not a thief. And you stole the day before yesterday. It's conformity across the line, everything you do in every way. You can't say, well, okay, I commit adultery, fine, but I don't rob anybody. No. It's not just the Eighth Commandment, it's also the Seventh Commandment. You can't say, well, I didn't kill anybody, but, you know, to hell with my parents. No. You can't obey the Sixth Commandment and disobey the Fifth Commandment to honor your parents. 
won't work. You have to be you have to conform in every way to all commandments. And then verse two, or verse two, a second sentence there. It is spiritual and so reaches the understanding, the will, the affections and other powers of the soul, as well as words, works and gestures. So the catechism is saying it's not just your outward performance. Aha. Now we're really getting into trouble. So it's not just that I didn't commit adultery. It's that I didn't flick on the click on the uh, pornography on my Internet and sit there and stare and lust after that woman. Or it's not that I didn't just click on the Internet, but it's that I didn't entertain these thoughts and undress that woman when I saw her. Or it's not just that I didn't kill somebody or steal from them, but I don't hate them in my heart and I wish good will for them. You see, it's down deep in the soul. You see what the catechism is saying? Look at number three. That one and the same thing in diverse respects is required or forbidden in several commandments. Number four. That as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. Okay? So if it is commanded uh, that I give to the poor, then it is also commanded that I not steal from them. (laughs) If it is forbidden that I would be unfaithful to my wife, it is commanded that I be faithful to her. So what the catechism is saying it, you, you take if it's commanded, the opposite is forbidden. If it's forbidden, the opposite is commanded. You see how holistic the law is. It's a total way of life in your thinking, your doing, your speaking, and your feeling. And uh, then in five, that what God forbids is at no time to be done. What He commands is always our duty, and yet every particular duty is not to be done at all times. Number six, under one sin or duty. All of the same kind are forbidden or commanded, together with all the causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto. You can look at the verses there under footnote 11 and see what they're talking about. What is forbidden or commanded to ourselves? Look at number seven. We are bound, according to our places, to endeavor that it may be avoided or performed by others, according to the duty of their places. So, if it is commanded that I tell the truth, that I not bear false witness in commandment number nine. I must be an honest man and I must do the best that I can do to see that my family is honest, that my children tell the truth. I am responsible for my influence in their lives. If it's if I should be honest and not steal, it is my duty as a citizen of this city to be sure that others don't steal. To the best of my ability. In my company. I'm not just responsible for my own expense account, but for my knowledge of everybody else's expense account and what they're doing. And to use influence in my company to bring, <clears throat> to bring righteousness. You see what they're saying then? The law of God, excuse me, thank you for this orange juice. This came in really helpful. The law of God is saying that we, when, we are, when we are enraptured by God's character, when we are in love with Him, and want to be like Him. We want the entire universe to be like Him. So you cannot isolate yourself, gate yourself off from everybody else, and say like the Pharisee, I'm fine. What's wrong with you? No, we're to be servants to the world that help them know the life that is in the law as well. That's a very important principle, and it's in the Scriptures. And then number eight, what is commanded to others, we are bound according to our places and callings to be helpful to them. 
and to take heed of partaking with others in what is forbidden them. So we're to help them, not just label sin and righteousness, but we're to help people to accomplish it. Okay, now you could say, where does most of this come from? Well, turn to the Sermon on the Mount someday. I mean, this afternoon, you can look on the Sermon on the Mount, see how Jesus deals with the law. What Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 5 in his first sermon in Matthew is to expound the law. And he says, you've heard that it was said, that is, by the rabbis. You've heard that the rabbis said, you shall not murder. Rabbis taught that, shall not murder. But I'm saying to you, if you hate your brother, you've as good as murdered him. In terms of sin, murder is worse than hate. Okay, there, there are gradations of wickedness. Actually, to take someone's life is worse than hating them. But hating them is a sin just as much as murder is a sin. And it's of the same genre. And they're both violations of the sixth commandment not to murder. Thou shalt not kill. So we see that when Jesus teaches the law, he teaches very much that it's spiritual, that it's communal, that it's not just for ourselves but our influence with other people, that it's holistic, it's all the time, it's in every way, our, every aspect of our being, every moment of our lives, in every way, and all of our influence. That's how holistic the law is, okay? So that's the reason Jesus, first of all, turns this man to the law. You call me good, no one's good but God alone. Let's get that straight. Now, let's talk about your goodness. You know how to inherit eternal life. Keep the commandments and you'll have life. Now, look at the man's answer. Thirdly, Jesus is going to help him get a view of himself. We need our uh, view of God rearranged. We need our view of the law of God rearranged. We need our view of ourselves rearranged. And this man says in verse 21, I'm sorry, verse 20, Teacher, he declared, notice he took off the good. (laughs) So he got that part right. He just calls him teacher now. Teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So... Here's what the man is saying. Jesus, when he says, consider the commandments, Jesus has in mind all this we just talked about. I think the larger catechism is correct. That is Jesus' view of the law. That's what Jesus means when he says, you know the commandments. And this man has the gall to say, yeah, I've checked off on that since I was a boy. (laughs) Yeah, no violations since I was 12 years old at Bar Mitzvah. You know, since I was a boy, that's what he's saying. Since I became a son of the law, my bar mitzvah, yeah, I've done it. Well, obviously, this man does not have a clear view of himself. And you know what? Neither do we or our friends. One of the most common frustrations I hear among Christian men in our church and other churches in terms of their outreach to other men in this community, they'll say things like this. Well, you know, he's just not interested. You know, he belongs to another church. They don't teach the gospel over there. But he goes every once in a while. He says he believes. I don't know how to reach him. You know what you're describing? You're describing the classic nominal Christian. A man that you are concerned about, whether he really knows Jesus Christ savingly. You're concerned that he doesn't have eternal life. You may very well be right. But you have no way to get through the crust of his own self-righteousness. He's already checked things off. He's already got himself a member of a church. He can call himself a Christian. He's been baptized, sanitized. He goes to communion every once in a while, takes the Eucharist. He gives, you know, tips his hat to the Lord. 
gives one or two percent or three percent maybe if he's really generous to the Lord every year. Uh, and he's not in any flagrant violations. He's not been arrested yet for anything. And he's basically successful in business. And who do you think you are? Is this not one of the most common problems when you live in an area like the South in general where the gospel has been made clear to a lot of people and they've figured out ways of resisting the real call of Jesus Christ? It's very frustrating, isn't it? And I've heard so many of you say, I just don't know how to get through to the person. Well, let me tell you something. This is exactly what Jesus is going to show us how to do because that's exactly the kind of person he's dealing with. This man was a member of the church. This man gave liberally. This man was respected in the community. And as far as he was concerned, you don't have a whole lot to offer him. Uh, now, he wants to go straight to the, to the teacher himself. How can I inherit eternal life? But he really thinks this is not going to be so hard. I mean, even the rabbis said, don't give more than 20% of your property away because then you'll become poor. I mean, this man had himself pretty well protected. And now he's, he feels pretty safe in going to Jesus, getting down on his knees and saying, tell me, Lord. And he's, he knows, he knows he's able to do whatever Jesus gives him to do. Uh, because he's, this guy's righteous. But this, guy, this, is, this is the super nominal Christian. What does Jesus do? God applies the law of God to us perfectly when he says to him, one thing you lack. Verse 21. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now look what this entails. First of all, notice uh, I didn't read this part. In the beginning of verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves the nominal religious person that you're thinking about. He loves him. He has profound compassion for him. You may get frustrated. Well, your frustrations come out of your own pride because you think your religion is better than his religion. And you want him to agree with you. And you know you're right. And it just baffles you that such a smart, nice person like that won't agree with you. You get angry. Or maybe you care for them so much, you're really frustrated. But notice that Jesus really, truly loved him. So everything he's going to say to this man, everything he said to him so far, comes out of love. Jesus is not trying to win this man's favor. Jesus, for himself, doesn't care what the man thinks. All that Jesus cares about is the man's welfare. So he's going to tell him the truth. So Jesus looks at him and loves him. And notice, that then secondly, he calls us to total surrender. He says to him, sell everything you have. Total surrender. Here's the difference between the rich young ruler and the blessed little children. The little children knew they didn't have anything and they knew they were completely dependent upon others for their welfare. The rich young ruler was building his estate so that he could take care of himself and the ones under his responsibility. He was the ruler. He was the prosperous one. He was the source of his own pleasure. And before Jesus ever says to him, follow me, he says, get rid of the crap. Get rid of this storehouse that you built that you think is provided for your security. Get rid of your gods. Get rid of the things that you think are providing for you. Get rid of your own self-sufficiency. Because Jesus knew in his heart, the Scriptures tell us, that he was struggling with greed. And greed comes from fear or pride or both. Pride in wanting to make yourself a great man in the view of others. You know as well as I do, God is not impressed. Who is impressed? Somebody's impressed. 
other men. They're impressed. You want to build in a big estate, be sure that others find out about it, hopefully through somebody else telling them how prestigious you are. And you're also afraid. You're afraid that things could collapse and you better really provide for yourself. Well, there's nothing wrong with being wise and careful and being a good planner. Those are all God-given skills that we're to be using, but primarily for the benefit of other people. Not for ourselves. This rich young ruler was in it for himself. And he had covered it with all the niceties and all the social subtleties that made him a respectable man in the view of other people. And it's so typical of what men do with their lives and with their estates. And Jesus is saying you have to leave that entire mentality. And for you, you're so diseased with it. Probably the only way you can get out of it is just leave it all behind like Peter, James, John, and Andrew have done. They left their nets. They left their means of employment behind them. They just left it. And whatever it takes for you, we saw last week, if it's your hand, cut it off. If it's your eye, take it out. These overstatements, these exaggerations that Jesus is making to say, look, whatever it is that keeps you from being a child, get rid of it. Because only by being a dependent child do you get in in the first place. And it's the only way you find your greatness. It's derived from the greatness of God. Everything is derived for a sinner. We can't work up anything. Righteousness, prosperity, eternal life. We can't work up anything that's good for us. It's all derived. It's all, it all comes to us as a gift. Be sure you're getting it from Him, not supplying it for yourself. So He says to him, total surrender. And gentlemen, this is the only way you can come to Christ. Now, for most of us, like 99.9, you won't sell everything you have. What you'll do is you'll say, Lord, if this now is no longer being managed for my welfare. This is now being managed for your glory. And that's what it means to sell everything. No longer do you manage this for your glory or your comfort or your convenience You manage it as a steward. That's what a steward is, a manager. You're now the manager. You're not not the board of directors. You are not the owner of the company. You're not a stockholder. You're a stakeholder, but you're not a stockholder. You don't own it. God owns it, and you're managing under His audit. And the question you and I have to keep asking ourselves every day is, Lord, is this being managed the way you want it to be managed? I mean, this is yours, so tell me. Show me. Guide me. And show me the life of Christ, how he managed the time and the resources that he had to accomplish his own purposes. Show me the apostles. How did they manage their resources to accomplish the agenda of the kingdom? That's what we do when we sell it all. And that is completely applicable to today. Until you have sold it all. Until you have said, I'm a manager for the king and that's it. I don't own anything for myself. Until you've said that, you're not going to even get the invitation to come follow him. You can't because you have a divided heart and divided loyalties. You have two gods. And Jesus says you have to serve which God, you have to choose which God you're going to serve. So he calls him to total surrender and he says, look, give to the poor. He calls us to active mercy for the poor. Why? Because if your property is under divine management, the poor are going to be a much happier lot. They are going to rejoice that God has gotten hold of some hearts and emptied some bank accounts for their welfare. 
Just in the paper on Monday, you saw, just like I did, that the number of severely poor people in this country, probably the wealthiest in the world, the percentage of severely poor people has gone up 26% in five years, between 2000 and 2005, when the study concluded its research. 26% in five years. And that's people who... A single person making five or $6,000 and a family of four under $10,000. That's severely poor. And we have millions and millions of people in this category. We have 16 million people in a country of almost 300 million who are severely poor. And so we have 37 million poor people. And now 16 million of them, 43% of them, are severely poor. And it's going up, not down. At the same time, the CEO salaries are going through the roof. And our returns, and I'm happy about this for my retirement account, you know, can't help but be. Our returns on, you know, investments, dividends and so on are going up. Stock market's going up. People's capital possessions are going up over the same, at that same period, pretty dramatically. And yet the poor are also going up in their numbers. Something's wrong, especially in a country that claims to be over half evangelical Christians, 55% evangelical Christians. Jesus says, Put it completely under my management, and let's take care of the poor. That's our mandate, physically, socially, legally. That's what justice is, take care of the poor. You say, well, there are all kinds of problems out there. Yeah, I know there are all kinds of problems. You say, well, it's not my fault completely. Well, no, it's not completely your fault. But we're to take the responsibility we're supposed to take. Remember, the law applies not only to ourselves but to our society. And we're to be looking for justice and righteousness in the entire society. So Jesus said to this man, this very wealthy man, this very prosperous man who had played by the rules, and he was a winner. And now Jesus was saying, you've got to be a loser. Not very attractive. And then he says to him, uh, you know, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And he's basically saying to him, trust in my goodness. Don't trust in the treasure you've got. Trust in the treasure I've got. You think your little toys can compare to the treasures I have? Do you not believe anything you read in the Scriptures that I own the universe and that I can give it to whomever I want to and I happen to be very pleased to give it to my children? Do you not believe that? Obviously you don't because you're storing up all this wealth. You're piling up more wealth than any human being could possibly use in a lifetime. You're piling up so much wealth you're not only ruining yourself but four generations after you. So you obviously don't believe that I've got something better than this. So he says it's a matter of trusting in His goodness. And then he calls us to imitate Him. He says... You, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And this is the heart to the answer to the question in verse 17. Here's the answer. Come follow me. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Come follow me. But I want to make it really clear to the nominal Christian who thinks he's got everything all worked out, got his righteousness all planned, got his estate all planned, he's in complete control of his life, and everything's hunky-dory. Let me explain to you just a little bit of what it means by following me. And so he cuts through all, he, he uses his spiritual strippies to take off all the crud that's developed on, on the veneer and just strips it off and says, that's what it means to follow me. There you have it. There's the answer for the nominal Christian. Now, it'll be maybe a little bit different 
answer in our day, in our generation. We, we ourselves have to, be, have to have the mind of Christ to say, what are the impediments? What are the other gods? What is the competition? And to be able to show folks how here's what it means to follow Christ, you have to drop the competition. You have to drop the other gods. Let's work through it. And with love in our hearts. And notice what happens. Jesus lets us then walk away. Because that's exactly what happened. At this, verse 22, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And notice what Jesus does. No, no, stop. Just a minute. We can change the rules. No, I didn't. Maybe I offended you. No, Jesus looks at him with love. Gives him the sincere invitation and pleads with him to come follow him. And the man makes his own choice and Jesus respects him as a human being who has the responsibility to make a choice and has the civil freedom to make a choice and who lives in a day of common grace where choices are allowed without being destroyed. There's still time. And Jesus lets him walk away. So you don't go fretting over it. If someone doesn't receive your invitation or to believe the, the news you're giving, you don't fret over it, fuss and fume and get mad at them and then hate them because they're an embarrassment to you or this awkward for you. No, you love them and you let them go their way and they go about their business being rich young rulers and you go about your business following Jesus Christ and you build society with them and you continue to respect and treat one another with dignity and Jesus lets him walk away. Now, notice the challenge goes on to the church. We've got five minutes and we'll probably only finish this paragraph. Jesus challenges the church then because the church can hardly believe what they just saw. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed. Why were they amazed? Because the rabbis taught. The rich people are the blessed people. Let me tell you why. Two reasons. Number one. God gives to those who give to Him. God rewards people who deserve it. And so when people are rich, you can just count on it. God is fair. He's fair in this life. And if someone has a lot of possessions, God is being fair to them and there's some reason they deserve it. So they're blessed. Second reason, in order to be blessed, you have to be able to give to other people. And the rich people have things and they can give it to the poor. And therefore, they're getting more blessing all the time. Just, they just keep investing in the poor and God keeps blessing them with riches. And so it's the rich people who can get God's blessing. That's what the rabbis taught in Sandy Wilson's vernacular. That's what the disciples believed. And so if Jesus says, how hard for the rich... The rich were the ones for whom it was easy. What about the rest of us poor slobs? I mean, if it's hard for the rich, they're amazed. And Jesus has to repeat it. And he says to the children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is teaching them in verses 23 through 25 is it is impossible for men to achieve eternal life. You know, I've heard people give different explanations on this. They say, well, you have to understand Jesus was using a little analogy there. There was a place uh, in Israel where two rocks were close together and they called it the eye of the needle because, you know, it's kind of like, you know, what the Rock City and Lookout Mountain has fat man squeeze, you know. And a little place there, if you've ever been to Rock City and you have to, you know, people like me have to go through sideways, you know, fat man squeeze. Well, they say, well, in Israel, there was a place where it was called the eye of the needle. And it was always difficult for camels to get through there. 
And so they say, that's what Jesus is saying. It's difficult. No, Jesus isn't saying that. He is saying, I have a needle, a real eye of a real needle. The smallest hole you can think of. Camel, the largest animal you can think of in Israel. And he says, it's just as likely for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God as it is for a real camel to get through a real eye of a needle. Now, how, how, how likely is that? The odds are zero. That's what Jesus is saying. Zero. He's saying it's impossible. You know what else is impossible for you? It's impossible for me. And we keep trying to work it from the bottom up. Somehow I'm going to take my moral character. I'm going to take all the things I've got. I'm going to, going to get God's eye. I'm going to impress Him. I'm going to win His favor. I'm going to be His child. I'm going to show Him how loving I am. It's impossible. But then He goes on to say, the disciples, after being more amazed, and said, who then can be saved? If the rich can't do it, who can? Jesus said in verse 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And so Jesus is saying, you don't understand what it means to inherit eternal life. You don't understand what it means to have eternal life. It's a gift to you. It's not something you did or accomplished. You never will. You never could. You may as well see a camel go through the eye of a needle as to see that. It's impossible for sinners. And we just don't ever really get it all the way into our heads. We keep thinking that surely we deserve something on our own rights. And we don't. And the key to the Christian life is knowing that you've received an undeserved reward. Sounds like a contradiction in terms. But that's what it is. An undeserved reward. Who is being rewarded? Christ is being rewarded for His great accomplishment on the cross and the resurrection. And He gives the reward to you. So it is a deserved reward, but not by you. It's an undeserved reward that Christ deserved and gave to you. He gave the trophy to you. He won it and gives it to you. Now the results, verses 28 through 31, lastly, are astonishing. And you see that Jesus says, you know, Peter, first of all, says, what about us? I mean, we, we left our nets behind. He says, well, let me tell you what about you. Nobody gives up anything in this life, but that it comes back hundredfold. And those of you who have been believers and walked with Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. You don't give up anything. It keeps coming back to you. His blessings keep coming back to you. And that's the very nature of being dependent upon Him. And yes, persecution and blessing go together in this present age, but we're rewarded now. And then he says in the, in the age to come, eternal life. The life that was promised in the law and which we now could not achieve because we can't obey the law comes to us through faith and following Jesus Christ. And he says, look, the ones who are seeking to be first, they're going to be last. You guys who have dropped your nets, who have given everything to Jesus, who are now the poor of the world, you're going to be first. And so we see that, yes, indeed, no one is great enough to earn eternal life. But the least of the creatures of this earth who put their faith in Jesus Christ will receive eternal life simply through faith in Him. We'll have to stop there. Let's pray. Father, go with us, please. And enable us to trust You like little children today. And in trusting You, help us to manage everything under our purview today in Your interest, in the interest of Your kingdom. Thank You that we are of interest to you too. So that even as we manage our affairs, we can manage them for our reasonable welfare and the reasonable welfare of our families. And that's part of your kingdom. That's part of your commandment to us. We would be worse than infidels if we did not manage for our families. 
Thank you for that, for caring for us. Help us to manage that well, but then, Lord, help us to manage with your eyesight for this world and to be the people of God, salt and light. And, Lord, may there be nothing in our hearts that sets itself against the goodness of God in such a way that we would not follow you. Enable us to drop it, whatever it is. Surrender ourselves to you that we may follow and receive the undeserved reward of eternal life. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.